So for those of you who uh, weren't here last week, uh, uh, I wanted to do an exploration of this first stage of awakening um, for, for some time. And uh, actually, I've been looking into it for many years and uh, uh, keep discovering new and wonderful things in it. I found it to be a, a teaching that is enormously helpful because through it we can understand First of all, what goes on at this stage? This is a very significant uh, stage in the process of waking up. It's a major transitional point. Um, you know, it, it's considered very important not only because uh, it uh, offsets rebirths in the lower realms, but also um, it, it's a, uh, it, it marks this point where practice begins to do itself. You know, there's a there's a relinquishment of a lot of doubt and um, uh, fear around practice, a relinquishment of that sense of me as the one who is doing it, uh, and a, a relinquishment of all manner of different uh, forms of views that are uh, incorrect views and are being held in a way that obstructs us and obstructs us in our practice. So I started out by looking last week at um, Wichikicha, that itchy one, <laughs> the skeptical doubt. And uh, we'll look in the coming weeks at uh, Sakaya Ditti, that personality view. But tonight and uh, next week, I'd like to look at this uh, middle one, the Sila Bhatta Paramasa. Uh, it's, uh, it's called uh, Attachment to Rites, Rituals, Precepts, and Practices. And I think I just like saying the word. <laughs> Sila Bhatta Paramasa. Sila Bhatta Paramasa, you know. And, and there's something in it, actually. It's quite valuable uh, to work with that word until it rolls off your tongue a little bit. Uh, but also to know what we're saying. Uh, and just to break it apart a little bit, the Sila bit we know. You know, this is about precepts uh, and behaviors, basically. Uh, the bata may be a little unfamiliar, but this, this is a Pali word that has to do with duties, responsibilities, and, and even to some extent uh, routines, you know, the kinds of routines that we get into. And, and paramasa is an interesting word. It's, it's in the clinging and upadana family, you know. It has to do with a clinging or holding on or grasping with a sense of... Uh, uh, sort of hanging on, you know, and, and uh, the, if you put that all together, this translation is usually comes out as holding precepts, ethics, and duties with grasping, or basically in, a, in an incorrect way. So the issue here is largely the clinging, you know, that, that this bit that's hanging on, uh, but it's also the not seeing. It's the fact of it being unaware. In fact, when I was looking for what Ajahn Chah had to say about it, he actually uses the word blind uh, in it. You know, he, he translates Silabhata Paramasa as, as a blind uh, attachment to rites, rituals, precepts, and practices. Uh, and of course, the underlying essence of it is this incorrect view. And the view here uh, and throughout the various forms that it takes, is uh, it's it's really interesting. It's the uh, the view that one can become pure just through performing the practices, just through basically showing up, you know, sitting uh, for hours and and what have you. Um, and uh, so that what happens here is that we. We imagine, and this is subtle stuff, it's not like we're consciously thinking this way, but there's a subtle imagination that all you have to do is kind of go through the motions. 
and something's going to happen. Uh, and that somehow the system will get purified. You know, I don't know about you, what that does to you, but uh, I, I sure know that one. <laughs> you know, it, it's, a, it's that feeling of just kind of sitting on the cushion for hours and um, thinking that that's enough. You know, and, and yet not really noticing whether or not we're even applying ourselves within the practice. You know, you, you, basically you look the part. <laughs> and I, I remember I had this shocking realization in this in my own practice. Uh, um, in one of the early years, one of the early retreats, where I was just um, very aware that I was walking around the halls you know, in a certain way, you know, with that slow rhythm and with my head down in the right position and, uh, and, and not realizing until one time when I got to my room and I closed the door behind me and I just went, ah, oh. you know, and, and realizing at that point what I had been doing, you know, that basically I had this notion that this is what a meditator looks like. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing stuff, but it's in there. <laughs> and uh, as I said, we don't often know what we're doing. So we're clinging to heady notions and ideas about practice. And these uh, actually stand in the way of um, experiencing uh, the freedom and what the practices can bring us. Uh, it's really an interesting fetter to examine. So just at the outset, a, a lot of people think, you know, in the, the scholars and the various books on Buddhism, they, they think that this is about the Buddha just taking pot shots at um, the Vedic practices of the time. And, and indeed, there's some evidence that he was doing that. You know, there's, it's, there's a certain amount of that in his teaching. Um, because it was very common at the time of the Buddha for the devoted practitioners to, to pay the Brahmins, you know, and for uh, religious um, services. For certain practices, and uh, and, and sort of uh, you know not not unlike what I knew in my Catholic upbringing of you know paying for indulgences, and uh, somehow uh, the idea was that you pay a fee, and you know somehow magically uh, Grandma is going to ascend to some higher realm, or you yourself are going to be um, free from the karmic consequences of some unskillful act. You know, these, this, was the, this was the setup at that time, and it's certainly present in other religious practices. But uh, the Buddha was clearly challenging this, not only the magical thinking behind it, which is definitely off, uh, and, and, you know, freedom just doesn't work like that. <laughs> so you can't pay some money, you know, and, and have uh, something um, get changed. Uh, but really, he also spoke a lot to the... Um, the power that it gave to spiritual leaders at the expense of the practitioner. You know, he didn't, didn't, want, didn't, didn't want that. He often drove home the point that um, our salvation is in our own hands. You know, often, you, you hear that uh, said many times throughout the suttas, and that nobody, nobody has the power to relieve us of our karma. There's, there's nothing to be done about that except to transform our behaviors in, in uh, future moments. So basically, we have to do the work ourselves. And, and these kinds of rituals and, and fees for services kind of things, uh, they, they can create the delusion uh, around that. Um, you know, this, this idea that somehow uh, some, you can get free uh, through these other secondary means. 
So this kind of attachment to rites and rituals, just kind of giving ourselves over to magical thinking in this way, is some of what we're talking about here with uh, Sila Bhatta Paramasa. But it's really the most superficial level of it. I think the meaning of it goes, it goes deep. There's layers to it. You know, maybe the next uh, more subtle or profound layer of it is that, um, you know, we aren't just talking about incantations and rituals in the conventional sense, you know, uh, these kinds of rituals like the Brahmins would do. But here, in, in this meaning, the way the Buddha's talking about it is, is actually pointing to our practices. Dana, sila, bhavana, metta bhavana, these practices of generosity, the precepts, meditation, and uh, cultivating kindness in the heart. And, and in essence, what he's saying here is that the clinging and the incorrect view has to do with imagining that our freedom is found in just doing these practice, practices and, and putting in the time, even getting good at them. This is interesting. Or doing them out of some sense of obligation or righteousness, but without reflecting accurately on what they're all about. You know, I, I've, of late, uh, in the last number of years, I've been asking people a lot uh, that I meet with in, in Dhamma discussions, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? <laughs> Do you know? Do you understand? Have you given that some thought? You know, it, and if you can feel that, what's, what's driving our practice is often an idea. It's a very subtle attachment to an idea or, or a notion that if we subscribe to a certain system or a belief, if we behave in a certain way, follow the meditation instructions, you know, send out nice thoughts to, to people in the universe, then this is going to somehow bring uh, desired results. And so that the net effect is that you get good at doing the practices. You, know, you perfect a, a technique but you never really experience the depth of what's possible through them. You know, and, and practice can get very heady. And it, it, it ultimately it needs to move down out of the head and into the heart, uh, into the whole abdominal area to, to where the whole being feels the states, enters the states that these practices are designed to bring us to. But it, it, you can go on for years and never quite take that leap, can't you? It's, it's fascinating to, to observe. And uh, I, I would say, I mean, I'll fess up, you know, definitely that's the case, you know. One, one pract- I certainly have practiced for years before I began to get out of my head about it all, you know, and, and still in that transitional um, effort here. So this is really deep stuff that he's pointing to here. You could easily miss the, the subtlety of what's being said. He's not um, discouraging getting good at methods and techniques, not by any stretch, you know, but rather just encouraging this mature perspective on them by just inviting us to, to be on the lookout for the, the subtle and maybe not so subtle ways that we're clinging to the forms and notice how um, we keep looking to these external forms, you know, expecting that somehow just going along with the program, just mere compliance without a deep investigation of what's going on in the mind and heart will, will set us free. You know, it's, it's, this, is a, this is a great gift he's given us in pointing this out because I think 
Uh, the nature of delusion, the nature of ignorance is such that you don't know you're doing it. <laughs> you know? And so this naming it and pointing us in that direction can be enormous, enormously helpful. So a, a number of years ago, when I first started exploring this um, teaching of the Buddha, I, I wrote to one of my teachers, one of the monks, about it. And, and you know, I asked him, I said, what's your take on this, Ajahn? <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you think the Buddha's getting at here? What's he pointing to? And his response was very, very powerful for me, and I'll, I'll share it with you. He wrote this. He said, the, the human default is to go into automatic pilot because it's easier that way. So we get dependent on objects, dependent on structures, relationships, and systems. With systems, we can expect them to work for us with a minimum commitment of faith, patience, <laughs> and that one, a minimum amount of patience, hurry up, hurry up, intelligence, or struggle. You know, somehow you'd expect there's not going to be a struggle here. Come on, we're moving from a totally unenlightened place to an enlightened place. You've got to know that's not going to be fun every step of the way. You know, there's going to be a battle here. With people, he says, we rely on them to tell us what to do. Later, he said, you can resent them both if they don't work or if they demand too much of us. Uh, we never really get to the point of using the systems and structures and following the guidance of the people so that we can see the truth for ourselves. Yeah? <laughs> if, you, if you can feel that, it's, it's like we're caught up in the ideas of forms of practice and not actually uh, applying ourselves within those forms, forms. It's like what Ajahn Chah <coughs> said in the reading last week. You know, chickens can sit for hours, you know. <laughs> we have to know that. And Ajahn Man, who was Ajahn Chah's teacher, uh, he said this about it. He said, the Dhamma won't serve us well if all we do is, con- is study and comply with rules or follow directions. You have to practice in order to get free. So, you know, you can see what my interest in this. It, it, it behooves us just to understand, uh, to take to heart, to give some contemplative thought to and examination of how it is that we're holding Donna, Sila, bhavana and, and metta bhavana. These are, these are our practices. You know, how are we holding them? And so I want to, it's going to take two weeks to cover that, and I, I do want to talk about generosity tonight and how we're holding that. But uh, first, I just want to make this uh, an important point before leaving this kind of overview of sila vata paramasa. You know, it, it's very easy to misinterpret what's being said here. And one of the incorrect interpretations of this would be that the Buddha is somehow down on conventional rituals, you know, or rites or things of this nature. But um, remember, it, it's not the—it's it, not these in themselves that are to be avoided. It's the incorrect view about them. In fact, you know, rites and, and rituals—they uh, figure prominently in Buddhist practices, Buddhist teachings and practices. They're very important. Uh, they make the heart happy, <laughs> and, and this fuels practice. You know, for example, um, 
Uh, I commend to you the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. If you haven't read this, this is a wonderful. It's one of the. I think it's the longest sutta in the Digha Nikaya, and it, there's so many w- wonderful points in it. Uh, but really, you just figure that it's the it's the right. It's before the Buddha's death, you know. And uh, basically, what he's doing is getting his affairs in order. <laughs> And the, the monks and nuns are all g- uh, gathering and uh, thinking about the things that they need to ask him before he leaves, you know. Uh, and so there's a, there's a lot of really good stuff in, in the sutta. But one of the things that um, Ananda asks him is, is something very basic, you know. He said, well, what do we do uh, with your remains after you die, you know. Uh, and so the, the Buddha goes through this explanation, uh, which includes uh, cremating them, and he says to, to erect a stupa at a crossroads, preferably, you know, where, where there's a lot of coming and going. Uh, and, and he puts it this way. He says, where um, people with devout hearts <clears throat> can bring wreaths and sweet perfumes and offerings and thereby reap happiness and benefit for a long time. You can, feel, can you feel that? It's just beautiful that what we do to venerate and revere the, the, our teachers and the, the people who have been such, of such great benefit to us, like the Buddha, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. But his, you know, his recognition of the importance of this kind of ritual, you know, for us, uh, I think he's saying these, these kinds of things are valuable. They're, they're important. Um, and uh, con- conventional rituals like this or rites, they, they give us a, a place to uh, express or cultivate this emotional connection with what we're doing. It's very important. Um, you know, we, you, you may have noticed we're very emotional beings. <laughs> kind of busting out all over the place sometimes, aren't we? <laughs> you know? So, you, you, as I said, you may have noticed this. And, and when it comes to our spiritual aspirations, you know, you need a place to express that. You need a place to connect, to make that connection. And it, it finds expression in a lot of these devotional practices like chanting or bowing or offering flowers or incense at, the, at a shrine or stupa. And, and uh, you know, through the years I've talked with a lot of people about their practice and their practice place. And uh, it's been interesting to me to uh, realize how there's just all manner of little things that people do to make their sitting place special. You know, so that it's not just plop down and meditate. There's a, there's a little something that is making it uh, a significant um, ritual or practice that one is entering. And, and I love that. And, and, and these kinds of things, I realize these kinds of things aren't for everybody. <laughs> you know? uh, it, it's not necessarily uh, something that we all want to do. But I do want to acknowledge that there's a place for it and, and, and possibly inv- you know, invite people to explore that. You know, these, these the things that we do, we can reject, you know, and that's actually a, a flip side of Sila Bhatta Paramasa. It's a form of it. It's like giving it too much emphasis. So then, oh, I don't do that, you know, having a view about it that way, you know. But uh, I don't know, some, many people who give themselves over to some of these things just love it. I know when I started <clears throat> bowing, I asked one of the uh, t- uh, teachers about it. I said, well, you know, why do we bow three times? And uh, he says, well, you got three, t- three opportunities to try to connect. <laughs> 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 he 
because you know exactly what he's talking about, you know, because we don't, we're not, we just, we gloss over, don't we? We just kind of uh, glaze over and don't make the connection all, every time. So just, a, just one more point on it, which I, I have found um, very helpful in my own life and practice. And that's just to consider some of the symbols in, in uh, Buddhist practices. You know, every morning and evening at Theravada monasteries in, in Asia and in the West, um, we have this um, uh, morning and evening puja, as it's, as it's referred to. The puja is an offering. So it's a coming together of the community. And it includes an offering at the shrine. Now, we don't do it here because um, a lot of um, people have sensitivities to certain chemicals and things. But this, it involves uh, offer, lighting incense and lighting candles and offering flowers at the shrine. And, and these are all very symbolic. You know, the, the candles um, symbolize the light of wisdom. That uh, panya, it's the panya part of the path that uh, dispels ignorance. And uh, the, the flowers symbolize sila. It said that the, the sila, uh, the natural beauty of sila, the inspiration of sila, and the beautiful fragrance <laughs> uh, that, that sila creates. Um, and uh, the incense is, is used usually to, in, as a, a symbol of the meditation, the samadhi that uh, in two ways, the, the, the fiery point uh, the, at the tip of the incense is the, symbolizes the fiery point of uh, ekagata, one-pointedness, that d- direct uh, observation, uh, single-minded looking that goes on in meditation. And then the fragrance that uh, emits from the incense is like, it represents the, the beautiful psychological atmosphere um, which arises uh, as a result of that one-pointedness. You know, the, 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 how the mind gets through the meditation process. And so there's all kinds of other things, you know, circumambulations and special ceremonies and things of this nature. And, and as I said, these, um, there's a lot of um, formal um, rituals in, in the Buddhist uh, uh, communities. And, you know, you don't want to gloss over these, you know, the, 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 they, they are significant. And as I said, they aren't for everybody, but uh, just to give them, uh, in a way, to give them their due. And when we do the chanting here, to make a, make a determination not to glaze over while we're doing it, but to actually make this connection. Yeah? So there, there's that. But the, very, the, the most subtle aspect of Sila Bhatta Paramasa to me, and this, is, this uh, is a very powerful aspect of this teaching. It, it has to do with um, the uh, inability in our practice or in the moment to release into direct experience. That one, uh, and, and look for it, look and see uh, if you can see this in your own experience, that basically one uh, clings to technical forms, or to the sense of me as the one who's doing it, you know, uh, and, and not able to just relinquish, just to let go into now. It's very hard to do, isn't it? You know, we, we, we work for hours and hours and, uh, through the, and through the years to try to uh, realize that experience, and yet it's very difficult. 
the, the mind, uh, it, there's a delicate balance in practice. You know, the mind has to be disciplined enough to use the forms of our practice to, to help us to uh, find our way to the moment. <laughs> You're using the mindfulness of the in and out breath, in and out, in and out, in and out, just to try to get here, find our way to the moment. And yet we have to be open-hearted enough and, and, you know, dare I say, courageous enough to let go into it. <laughs> you know, it's scary to just relinquish into that. It, it, there's a leap there, a kind of a leap of faith uh, uh, and a leaping off um, the ground, if you will. You know, there, it's letting go into a kind of, of groundlessness. You know, so you have this feeling, okay, I've disciplined myself to stay with the breathing. Now can I just let go? Can I, can I lose the me who's doing the breathing? And just know, um, be in the knowing of the breathing. Can I lose the me who's being generous and just enter this unbelievable quality of heart that is dhamma? That is generosity. You know, can I, can I lose the me that's being skillful and settle into uh, our own natural goodness? I just feel what that feels like. You know, Ajahn Chah put it this way. He said, when we're doing true contemplation, all dualistic thinking ceases. In other words, there's no more me and it. Yeah? I don't know what that does to you. It's like, oh. <laughs> it, 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 it's so delicious, you know. But maybe we experience it for moments here and there. Uh, maybe if we're fortunate enough, we've we've had a good run of it, you know. But this is this is what uh, sila bhata paramasa can obstruct. You know, there's an attachment. Just a holding, holding on for dear life, you know. I don't want to let go. You know, and, and it's, it's difficult to describe, let alone experience. But, you know, I suspect you, you know what I mean. It, it calls for uh, us to practice diligently, to train the mind, to stay put, and then uh, to let go into the moment and see what it holds, see what's happening. No attachment, no holding on to the forms or to me. So that's just an overview of Sila Bhatta Paramasa. Uh, interesting stuff, isn't it? <laughs> I have found it very, very helpful to just to get your antenna out for it, see the subtle ways that one is clinging to forms, methods, techniques, practices, me, <laughs> all of that. And so just uh, tonight I'd like to walk through how we do this with Donna. Um, and uh, as I said, next week we'll look at the, uh, uh, the other three practices uh, that are our major practices. You know, first I just want to acknowledge that uh, we're, we're all very generous people. <laughs> I mean, you look around at this place, at monasteries and various retreat centers that have developed literally in the last 50 years or so. 
You know, this is all new stuff, and, and yet look at the outpouring. <laughs> look at how people have risen to the occasion and said, no, this is something I want to support. This is something I value, and um, I want to make an offering to see that these kinds of places exist and persist. And, uh, you know, the, the, the generosity that had to, uh, uh, the outpouring here has been un- unbelievable. And so, so nobody can fault us in this regard. But the question here is, um, are we realizing what's possible through the, the full and active cultivation of this beautiful quality of heart? You know, we can be holding uh, the practice of dana at very superficial layers of the mind. Uh, and, and not really experience its fullest benefits. It's like it gets to be, it's a very heady thing. There's a, there's a lot of shoulds in some of these things. You know, you should give, you should do this kind of thing. Uh, and, and yet, which is fine, and, and, and the Buddha actually even indicates in several suttas that this is all giving, even if it's coming from superficial layers of the mind, it is generosity. But the effort here is to get it into the heart and to, to turn, turn around and feel what is actually going on uh, in this heart, in, in the offering. You know, it's a, it's a foundational practice in the Buddhist teachings. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's uh, the first in the gradual teaching, Dana Sila Bhavana. You know, and, and I remember asking one of the teachers about this one time, why do you think that's there? And he, he, he said that uh, basically he thought that the Buddha always taught Dana first because he had to sort of assess whether he had people who were receptive. <laughs> because if anybody didn't understand the necessity or the, the value of extending yourself for the welfare of other people, then he's going to have to do some you know, backing up. <laughs> And, and get some foundational stuff going here because everything is built upon that. You know, that's, that's sort of the baseline. And, and, and it's first in the teaching on the, on the paramis. And uh, I just think it's really helpful to contemplate why, why is that so? You know, the, the Buddha seems to be saying that before any of our efforts or, or practices to awaken get a, can get off the ground, let alone bear fruit, you know, we need to know firsthand what uh, this experience of offering is. You know, that there's, a, there's an extending ourselves for the welfare of other people. There's a, there's, there needs to be an emptying out. Can you feel it? It's like, it, it's a, this is the ma- one of the primary antidotes that we have for self-absorption and self-concern. You know, that, that, that has to be relinquished and, and um, emptied out. In fact, I learned a number of years ago that uh, in some monasteries in, in Asia, uh, it is the common practice that um, you, uh, a novice can't uh, enter full ordination for quite a long period of time, sometimes as many as five or ten years, um, and during which time they, 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 uh, their, their practice, their training, is completely uh, dana. <laughs> it's attending caring for, looking out for the needs of the elders or the extended community in one form or another. And, and that basically you sort of get this feeling like what, what, the, what the training is trying to do is get the soil fertile, you know, <laughs> and get, get the uh, foundation there uh, that's suitable for the, the practices that are to come after that. And even in our own tradition, in, in 
the um, monasteries, uh, the disciples of Ajahn Chah, um, they, you can be ordained, but they still have that relationship where for, um, usually for five years, sometimes seven or eight, it depends on uh, the, the way the, the monk or nun or, or enters the, uh, the community, um, they are attendant. You know, they, they, they are linked up with a senior uh, monastic. And much of their practice life is about anticipating and meeting the needs of that person. <laughs> it's a, it gives me goosebumps. <laughs> it's, so, it's so beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to observe, the care. I remember even thinking this will be my sexist thought of the night, um, watching some of the men do this. I thought, look at that, men care too, you know? <laughs> that they would look out, for the, look out for the senior monks with such love and affection and care and consideration. You know, it's beautiful stuff to, to witness. You know, but it, it really recognizing and, and seeing, even as an observer, let alone as a participant, um, the, uh, how that is overriding or uprooting self-concern. Fabulous stuff. So, um, just, just a, a reflection on what's going on with all this. You know, what, what we know about the unawakened mind is that it tends to be preoccupied with outcomes, with objects, with things, with externals, with ideas, things of this nature, and not with the direct experience. You know, you, as meditators, man, we know that better than anybody. <laughs> you sit down and you meditate, and it's just completely preoccupied with anything but now. You know, anything but right here and right now. And so we, we just tend to, uh, to glom onto things in a heady kind of way. And the way that this plays out with generosity is it, it, it manifests as a, a kind of putting too much emphasis on the end product. You know, so um, that you, you get a, a big preoccupation with the gift. What should I give? How much should I give? You know, who should I give it to? All of that, giving at the right time. Or, or we get a preoccupation with the idea of giving, it's a good thing, you should do it, it's the right thing, that kind of thing. Uh, and when it comes to institutions and, and churches and synagogues, uh, most of us have even grown up with a sort of institutionalized versions of this, where uh, I, I know in our church we even had formulas. You know, you were supposed to tithe 10% of your, whatever your income was. And so we, we carry those kinds of notions and concepts and ideas with us into, into our, our Buddhist lives. And, and, and uh, just using them to help us decide what to give and who to give to and how much to give and, and all of that. And, and, and can you feel that? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, you, see, you can feel, get a sense of the Sila Bhatta Paramasa here. It's all up here. You know, it's not, it, it's got to take the elevator down, <laughs> you know, and get into the heart. And, and to be fair, I think uh, really the, even these institutions, these, even these Buddhist institutions ha- have fed into this, you know, unwittingly. And, and, and there's no fault or criticism or blame here. I think we just have to, we, we don't know about dana yet. We're just learning about it, you know, and, and really getting to understand the depth of this practice, the significance of it. 
But, you know, just by, for example, starting off with the, the Donna talk at the end of retreats, you know, it can leave us with the impression that this is the practice of Donna. <laughs> you know, this, this, isn't to, this is just the form that it takes. You know, the, the practice of Donna, it's, it's, it's in the heart. It's, uh, it's much deeper than this. It's not the, the objects that are offered. And even uh, some of the language that's used, I think it's changing through the years, but you sort of get this tit-for-tat kind of guidance. Well, they just taught you, now you give to them. Or uh, you get this talk about the tradition of dana, and which is important. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that uh, it, it's lesser than. It, it's uh, what I think we're trying to do in, in our... Uh, lay Buddhist uh, centers is, is to try to really communicate the depth of this uh, practice of dana and to get it outside of this sort of institutional giving thing. You know, it's much more than that. Um, yes, we, I'm not saying give that up, but um, turn around and face what's going on in the act of that. And as I said, I think we, ha- we have a lot to learn about this. It, it, this is the forms that it takes, but this kind of attitude doesn't reach the essence of what generosity is all about. You know, you really have to get down and feel it, and, and we can totally miss that. You know, I, I had my own uh, baptism of fire with this uh, through the years of, of spending time at the uh, monasteries in the lineage of Ajahn Chah, and in a way, you could track the the gradual awakening to the possibilities of this teaching, just by watching what happens to people through the years in these places. And and for me, for many years, you know, uh, going to the monastery was just largely being preoccupied with um, doing what needed to be done, uh, mostly cooking the meals, serving serving up the food, uh, preparing things for the, the main meal of the day. And, uh, you know, I, I w- if I was honest, looking back on it, I was preoccupied pretty much with doing it right, getting it right, getting the job done, just in a way caught up with the giddiness of it, you know? It was like, it was like Christmas and uh, birthdays and everything all rolled into one, you know? You're just kind of creating, you've got a party every day, you know? <laughs> you're creating a meal and serving it up and offering it, and these great people are going to come and take it, you know? And, and, and I loved it. I mean, there's a, there a way that I loved it. But if I'm honest, looking back, it was giddy. It was uh, uh, caught up at that level. But then um, what would happen is with the, the very deliberate and wise guidance of the nuns, you know, they would come into the kitchen every day. And uh, right in the middle of the hustle and the bustle, it's like, you know, the pots are flying and the chopping is going on and, and uh, all this activity of the meal. And they'd say, stop. <laughs> and, and you go, no, sister, I can't do it now. I got to get him, you know. <laughs> stop, you know. And, and go over to the, the shrine and light a candle and light some incense and invite some contemplation. You know, and it takes. It took me a little while to warm to this because I was so into getting the job done. You know, but just basically what they would do, whichever nun came in, is just um, slowly uh, turn to the experience of your heart. And they would say, like, 
Don't go through the motions. Ask yourself, what are you doing? What are you doing here? You know, you'd have to You'd have to say, well, I'm cooking a meal, you know, I came here. But meanwhile, you came seven, eight thousand miles to do it, you know. And, and you start to get in touch with the depth of this uh, w- desire to offer, <laughs> but which can be completely clouded over uh, in, in the uh, earlier variation on that theme, right? It, we're not touching it. And uh, I would, uh, little by little, you know, uh, do through their guidance, just go to this place where she would say, pay attention. What's happening in your heart? You could be anywhere now, but you're here. Are you noticing that? (laughs) And I'll go, I'll be darned. No, I wasn't, (laughs) you know. Uh, And and just really feel it. And and gradually one begins to recollect what you're doing and feel the great joy that comes with this kind of offering and feel what it feels like in, in the heart. You know, and realize you, you don't have to be doing this, but you are. Well, isn't that amazing? That, that's coming from this heart. That's not coming from someplace else. That's coming here. But we can miss it. We can totally miss it. And then, not only in the preparing, but then in the offering of the meal, you know, many, uh, many years ago, we, uh, this is going back 35 years, but we used to actually put the food in their bowls, you know, and they still do that here sometimes where the monks and nuns, uh, when they do the monastic retreat, when they come for their food, um, we all line up and actually put the food in the bowl, you know. And man, you have to be totally emotionally bankrupt <laughs> to, to not feel what that feels like. You know? Here, basically, what you're touching is I value the choice that you have made in your life, I value your renunciation, and I uh, am glad to offer in whatever way I can to support that. Yeah? It just, you know, I stand on that line sometimes, like, oh, here, have some food, I'm sorry. You know? <laughs> it just feels so good, you know? And, and, and it's just a form, alms mendicants, you know, um, offered food on a daily basis, but just think about the brilliance of the Buddha that he set this up, you know, where every day, uh, in uh, Buddhist countries, Buddhist families. That's the first thing they do in the morning, is get up and think about what they can offer. Think about what they can give. Because the monks and nuns parade through the streets with their bowls and uh, receive offerings. You know, I asked one of the monks one time, I said, what's that like, you know? You go down to the uh, main square and the little town outside London and, and just stand there or march through or, or you know, that takes various forms. And I said, and, and, and what's the setup there, you know? And, and he, w- he said, well, basically what it is is the, the alms mendicant makes oneself available for generosity. And that they're, they're, they're um, pulling for that. You know, that the form 
pulls for it. You know, and, and granted, we may not have, we may not do it to that extent in, in this country, but the sentiment of it, I think, we're wise to take to heart. You know, that to see any, to see opportunities for giving as a gift to us. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, that's the, the, the movement of the heart. You know, it's built right into their way of life. But it can be built into ours, too. Or what I do with a lot of this, because, I mean, I don't live with these people all the time. I don't live in a Buddhist country. But um, you translate it, don't you? You sort of say, okay, well, that's, I'm not doing that, but I, I can find a way to bring that into my life more fully. So, you know, the, the, I guess the moral of the lesson here, the story is that, you know, you can do it blindly for a long time. And this is true of all of our practices. <laughs> but sooner or later, you're going to offset that tendency to glaze over. Sooner or later, you know, just, and, and maybe this is the value of putting in the time, you know. Sooner or later, something's going to go, what am I doing, you know? And, and the, the, the heart or the uh, mind will attend and it'll take it in. You know, and this is a daily happening, as I said. In, in places like this, the forest refuge, we, we're carrying this forward. There, 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 there's different um, uh, possibilities or opportunities for that kind of offering that are set up in the system itself. So, uh, in the in the Buddhist teachings, we we learned that the, uh, this is a, an interesting aspect of it. There's this one sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya where the Buddha. Uh, outlines the eight reasons for giving. And, uh, you know, there, you get this feeling as you're reading it that there's sort of a gradual <laughs> uh, maturing that's going on in it. And, and some of it, the first ones, are sort of like what I was saying, oh, the tit-for-tat giving, the giving because it's our tradition, uh, because my mother and father always did it, and now I do it, or, you know, the giving... Uh, that, that sort of feeling that we have where, you know, people invite you to dinner, so now you have to invite them. But, uh, you know, and the, the acknowledgement in the sutta is that that's all giving. That that's, and, and that's uh, important to recognize. Um, and the, the optimal one, the, the, the one at the top of the list, really got me when I first read it. It's um, giving um, the, the optimal reason for cultivating generosity, is to purify this heart. To purify this heart. Not somebody else's, but this one. And, and this is interesting, because um, it, it, it's not looking at the recipient. It's not looking at the gift. You know, clearly, the, the, it, it's speaking to what Donna is all about, is the heart of the donor. And I don't know about you. Yeah, you may have realized this, but I didn't realize that for a long time. You know, it, it's about this heart. What's going on here? And, and at its at its best, it's about concern for the welfare of others, extending ourselves for them, even to the extent where their needs become more important than our own. That's considered optimal, and it's very joyful. It's quite, it's quite an empty state. And so you, you can feel directly how it is that, that Donna here is this key player 
in overcoming self-absorption and self-concern. And here's, here's how the Buddha puts it. What is the accomplishment of generosity? Here, a noble disciple dwells at home with a mind devoid of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, devoted to charity, delighted in giving and sharing. This is called accomplishment in generosity. So in order to do that, you know, we have to let go into the direct experience of dana. And so one of the things that I find so beautiful in this is that there is no shortage of opportunities for that. (laughs) Because as I said at the start of the talk, we're very generous people. We're giving all the time. You know, and so maybe the invitation here is lose the idea of it, lose the um, heady aspects of it, and get down into it. <laughs> Just really uh, let it rip. Feel what it feels like. Uh, no thinking. If you're thinking about it, then uh, that's an obstacle. Just get into the, the heart of it. Feel the, the emptying out that it brings and, and feel the space that it creates in the heart. Feel the player that it is in relaxation. It brings a, a tremendous amount of relaxation into the system. It, it's just, it's lovely stuff. So I guess the, the idea here is to, to let our traditions guide us. Use those traditions. Use the forms. Uh, uh, but don't hesitate to let go into the direct experience of it. Because it's what's going on in the heart that it's all about. <laughs> so I offer this for your reflection tonight. I hope in some small way it's useful. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.